Good morning, church. That was an awesome communion message uh, from Ellen. I so appreciate everything you shared. Uh, that was really encouraging. And Doug is amazing as well. Doug is full of wisdom. So I love those Doug talks, uh, Douglas talks. I don't know if he goes by Doug. Maybe it's Douglas. So uh, anyways, you can open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, we're going to continue on in our series in the book of Ephesians uh, as we continue to uh, focus on our theme of all things new in 2021. And uh, I think it'll be a really encouraging message. I'm excited about the book of Ephesians. When I moved to Minneapolis, uh, probably 10 years ago, uh, Steve Sandin preached on the book of Ephesians, and he preached on it for nine months, only six chapters of the Bible. And it took him about seven months to get through the first three chapters. And so he spent a lot of time preaching what we're looking at in a couple months here. And so there's a lot of depth that we could dig into, and I'm excited to preach this morning. So... Uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, I wanted to think for a moment just what the book of Ephesians is, uh, and maybe you haven't thought so much about this, but I think when we study our Bible, it's always really important to, to think through uh, what the genre is. We think through the historical background. We think through the grammar of different passages and look at what the words mean, all that sort of stuff, but we don't often think about the, the type of rhetoric that the Bible is using in an individual book. And I just want you to think just for a moment, uh, imagine if I were to tell you a story and I were to start it out and say, once upon a time, uh, what would you immediately think about what type of story I'm about to tell you? Uh, now, I could be telling you all sorts of stories, but probably you would think that I'm telling you a fairy tale. Uh, you would think that there's going to be uh, some funny characters in this story. There's probably going to be a moral attached to the story. And how would the story end? They all lived happily ever after, right? And so when we think about a story, we think there's certain rules that you follow anytime you read a story, and you don't necessarily even think about it. You're just so familiar with it that you just start to assume this is how the story is going to end, right? And imagine if you were to turn on the news maybe a couple weeks ago, uh, and let's change the, the type of story that it is. Let's think if you were to turn on the news and it says on the bottom of the screen, uh, rioters storm the U.S. Capitol building, do you think that that story is going to end and they all lived happily ever after? Probably not, right? And so the type of rhetoric that we are, you know, or the type of medium of communication really makes a lot of difference in what we expect of what we're reading or listening to. Uh, I got a text this last week from somebody and in the text message, it said, J-S-Y-K. I never heard what J-S-Y-K means. I don't know if she just made this up, but I sort of figured out eventually that what it was referring to is just so you know. Uh, and so even when we think about text messages, we think, okay, anytime we get a text, there's certain rules that apply to text messages. There's different kind of code language and things like that. Well, what is the book of Ephesians as we read through and study the book of Ephesians? In the ancient world, there was all different kinds of rhetoric as well. And so, for instance, they had a style of rhetoric called judicial rhetoric. That's what we read in 2 Corinthians. Paul is uh, defending his apostleship. That's what judicial rhetoric is. If we were to read 
the Sermon on the Mount, it's more of a deliberative rhetoric where uh, Jesus is kind of contrasting two different things. You've heard that it was said this, but I tell you this. Uh, there's a broad road and then there's a narrow road. That's what uh, deliberative rhetoric is. The book of Ephesians is a style of rhetoric called epidectic. And here's what epidectic rhetoric is. It's basically what you would have if you had a military commander gather his troops together and he's going to give him a rousing rally call to inspire them about the battle ahead. And so he's going to gather the troops and he's going to say, basically, look, you guys have been trained and equipped. You have everything you need. Now you go and fight. And that's what we have when we read the book of Ephesians is the Apostle Paul is using a style of rhetoric to inspire us to eventually what he'll get to in chapter 6, to, to put on the full armor of God and we go out and we fight. But in the early chapters, it's telling us everything that we have in Christ. That's what Eli preached about a couple weeks ago. And uh, the passage that we're going to look at today is going to be a passage that helps us. It's a prayer that we're going to look at to grasp everything that we have in the gospel and particularly who God himself is. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. I don't know if this is working. I just don't have it on. There we go. Um, it's also what the Green Bay Packers are probably going to do in their pregame speech. They're going to use epidectic rhetoric. They're going to inspire and rally the team together to, to go for the victory. You have everything you need to go and win this game. Ephesians has always been a, a source of inspiration for me. Uh, if you think about all the things that the Apostle, or sorry, Eli talked about, uh, or the Apostle Eli, uh, all the things that Eli talked about with our identity and all these different things that are available to us as Christians, uh, we talked about being adopted and chosen and forgiven and sealed with the Spirit, all of these different things that we have in Christ, in our union with Christ. And it's not as though we're like walking through a museum when we talk about these things. When you walk through a museum, you know, all the ancient artifacts are behind the protective glass and you're kind of supposed to stay behind the red velvet rope and all those things. Uh, don't touch the treasures, right? Well, all these things that we talked about or Eli preached about are not things that we can't experience for ourselves. They're things that if we're a Christian, they're true of us personally. And Ephesians inspires me because it goes on to talk about all these things we have, and it tells us the incredible treasures that we have in Christ. Here's a, a couple things, just if we look at the wider letter just for a moment, uh, then we'll get into the passage we're going to preach on this morning. But uh, one of the things Ephesians does is it talks about these superlatives. Uh, it expresses the things that we have as Christians with sort of the highest possible degree, the highest quality of, of, of treasures. And so what we're going to look at today in a moment, it talks about the incomparably great power for us who believe. It's incomparable. There's nothing in the world you can compare to the power that we have available to us as Christians. In chapter 2, verse 7, it talks about the incomparable riches of His grace. Uh, in chapter 3, in verse 19, it talks about love that surpasses knowledge. Uh, 
Uh, we can't just study our way into understanding God's love. It surpasses knowledge. In chapter 3, in, in verse 8, it talks about the boundless riches of Christ. He is using language to describe you can't even wrap your mind around everything that we have. And then in chapter 3, in verse 20, it talks about how God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Everything in this letter is intended to sort of uh, inspire us and to boost our spiritual morale, so to speak. You know, I, I think when I, I personally, when I moved to Minneapolis, uh, this is probably, I guess it's more like 13 years ago. Uh, I remember thinking when I moved to Minneapolis, I was going there to be an intern in the campus ministry. I remember thinking this was just going to be the most awesome experience in the world. And basically, I was going to walk on campus at the University of Minnesota and be putting my hand on people's foreheads and just baptizing them left and right. And I just thought it was going to be an easy, breezy experience. And that went on for about nine months where it was just crickets. Nothing was really going on as far as what I could tell. And what followed was a spiritual slump. It was so discouraging to think all of my expectations and what I thought was going to happen was not going the way I expected. And the spiritual morale, the sort of excitement to sort of fight the spiritual battle starts to be diminished. There's a spiritual dullness. The motivation becomes draining. And I think anytime we have those moments of discouragement, it could either lead towards despair or towards discovery. You're either going to go one way or the other, and they're meant to lead us to discover something about who God is and what God does in our life. And that's what the Apostle Paul's prayer is, is it's a prayer for the depth of discovery, to know God better. That's what I needed 13 years ago, and I've needed it over and over in my life since then. Let's read in chapter 1 and verse 15. It says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. 
You know, this is an incredible prayer that we learn not only how to pray, but we learn what we ought to be pursuing in our Christian life. And the first thing I want to talk about is I want to talk about the light. You know, Paul prays that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. And I want to just simply ask the question, are the lights on? You know, the first two verses, we'll get to that in just a moment, but the first two verses just remind us of our plan to be praying for each member of the church that we started earlier this year, to be praying and giving thanks for uh, the faith and the love that we see in their life. And we see the Apostle Paul doing this with the Ephesian Christians that he's writing to. And, you know, today's Christine Brunicki to, to give thanks for her. I mean, the Brunicki family as a whole is just an amazing family. Uh, so grateful for, for their faith and their love, just in them showing it to my own family. But I think I've had to learn a lot to be more expressive with my gratitude. And I, I just imagine that that's probably true of a lot of us. I've had to learn to, to, to be thankful for the people that God has put in my life, because naturally I tend to be really negative. Um, I tend to see all the problems, I tend to see the obstacles, I, I tend to immediately go there, and as a Christian, I've had to learn, okay, that's not the place to dwell, there's so much to be, to be grateful for, for one another. I tend to be so negative, I can think of, you know, discussions I've been a part of where people would just look at me like, you're being so negative, you're grossing us all out right now. That's just kind of where my mind goes. But gratitude is so important for our unity and our relationships, to express that to each other, to build those relationships. Amen? You know, Paul goes on and he uh, talks in this passage. It says that he keeps asking. He keeps asking. This is an ongoing request in verse 17 for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And then in verse 18, he prays that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. You know, the, the NIV, if you're reading that translation, it makes it sound like it's two separate requests that the Apostle Paul is asking, which is possible. It could be two different requests. Some translations will make it more one request. It's a general request that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And then he's more specific in talking about that God would open the eyes of our heart or enlighten the eyes of our heart to understand these various things. But the request is for the lights to be turned on inside of us. That's what we all need in our own spiritual life. Uh, this is how I know that I've officially have the dad card. I've officially become kind of an old man. When I have, first have kids, you know, you just have kids. But then all of a sudden, there's a, a transformation that takes place where now I'm officially a dad because I go through my house and I'm constantly telling my kids to turn the lights off. Uh, I don't know, and I don't even know how much it costs to leave the, the lights on in a room. It just bothers me. Uh, to see the lights turned on and nobody's in the room, right? Well, the Apostle Paul is praying the opposite. He's praying that the lights would be turned on inside of us. And that's what we need. Personally, I imagine this sort of like a dimmer switch. It's not just like, you know, you flip the toggle switch and the lights are on forever. 
but we pray that God would enlighten us, that it would, the dimmer switch would go on and we'd begin to understand these precious things that we have as Christians. You know, Eli, this last Wednesday, talked about our discipling relationships with one another. Who would you rather be discipled by, someone with the lights on or off? I think you'd get a lot more encouragement and help and direction and advice and better input if the lights are on, right? You know, who do you want to introduce your non-Christians friends to? A, a church with the lights on or off? You know, who do you want leading and shepherding the congregation and, and caring for one another? The lights on or off? You know, who do you want your spouse to be? Do you want them to have the lights on or off? Well, the answer is to pray, 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 and keep praying. Pray that God would illuminate what we read and study in the Bible, that we would get to know who God is and know Him better and better so that we can live our lives as Christians and have an amazing church and continue to grow and be blessed by God. Amen? You know, we don't pray for enlightenment so that we don't need our Bibles anymore. It's not like once we're enlightened, it's like, well, we could set the Bible down. We don't need the sermon thing anymore. I'm now enlightened. I now understand everything, right? We pray so that God's Spirit illuminates the truth of the Bible so that we can grasp its implications and the weight of it and the gravity of it and the fullness of it. And we see this actually... Uh, as a reoccurring theme in the Bible, I think about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, in Luke chapter 24, it says that as Jesus was talking about the scriptures with them, that God opened up their minds to understand the scriptures. We see in Acts 16, God opened up Lydia's heart to understand the gospel. Uh, the psalmist prays in Psalm 119 that God would open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. It's to illuminate what we read and study in our Bible. And the ultimate goal is that we would get to know God better. That's the goal of Paul's first request, is that, that we would know Him better. He refers to the glorious Father or the Father of glory. And we're all getting to know who He is better. The greatest need, this is what by the way, my life group is mainly focused on, is getting to know God better. And the book talks about, and I think it's a great insight, it says our greatest need today is to know Him better. And we can all get to know God better. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how long you've been reading your Bible, how well you know your Bible. It, we can all get to know who He is better, and there will never be a time in our life when our knowledge of Him is complete. We may get bored in our relationship or knowledge of God, but that's not a deficiency in who God is. It's a deficiency in us. And so our whole Christian life in many ways could be described as ultimately getting to know who God is better. You know, Jesus described eternal life in John 17, 3, as knowing God and the one He sent. Is that how you think about eternal life? That what it is, is it's to know God. You know, Paul expressed his desire to know Christ and the power of His resurrection in Philippians 
John in 1 John 3, 2 states that when Jesus appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. The whole Christian life is about getting to know who God is. You know, I think about this, I just want you to imagine, uh, imagine if I were to adopt, let's say, an eight-year-old child from, let's say, a foreign country, a third world country. And so I get on a plane, and we go through the whole adoption process, and um, we take the, you know, bring our new adopted child home, and, um, you know, we stop at our house first, and then we think, you know, I got to go stop and get some groceries. So me and my adopted son now go off, and we uh, stop at the grocery store, and we walk through the grocery store, and we're in the produce aisle, and as we're walking through the grocery store, I kind of look out of the corner of my eye, and I see my new adopted eight-year-old son snatch a banana out of the produce aisle and stick it in his shirt. And he's going to steal a banana. Now think about what I would do as his dad. I could start yelling at him right out the gate, what's your problem? Don't steal a banana. Or I could you know, pull out the Wisconsin, you know, law and start reading all the statutes until I get finally to the one about theft. And I could go one by one and go, don't you know that it's illegal to steal? Or do I start to think to myself, actually, maybe the way that he survived in a third world country is he would go through the dirt roads and he'd see a, a fruit you know, vendor, and he would just snatch a banana in order just to survive. And then I start thinking, actually what he needs, actually what he needs is for me to take him to our house and show him our pantry. And he goes, see all this food in our pantry? Then let's go over to the fridge. Then let's go over to your bedroom. And guess what? I'm your dad. I've adopted you, and I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. There's no need. Now, I may need to show him the law. He may still need to learn that. But I guarantee you he needs to understand that I love him and I'm going to take care of him. And I think this helps us to grasp and understand why it's so important that you get to know who God is better. And that's partially through studying your Bible, but it's going to be partially through praying that God would open up your heart and help you to understand him. You know, knowing him better is going to require turning down the volume of the world and turning up the volume of God's word. You're going to have to focus on what God's word reveals about who he is and pray that God would uh, illuminate our hearts. Amen. Secondly, you know, as he prays, he prays that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we would know the hope and the riches and the power that is available to us. He says, the hope to which he's called you. You know, the, the hope in the Bible, in the New Testament, our hope is, is rich and it's varied. You can't just point out one single verse and go, that's what our hope is. Because it's described in so many different passages throughout the New Testament. But later in Ephesians, it talks about those that are separated from Christ are without hope. They have no hope hope. But when we become Christians, this is what we have. Our hope is this confident expectation in which we need God's Word coupled with God's Spirit to illuminate. 
He talks about the, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Uh, the inheritance could be actually taken as the inheritance God himself receives, or it could be the inheritance that God bestows upon us, that he's giving us. Uh, arguments have been made both ways as far as how the, the text should be translated, but it seems that God's inheritance points to the end of our Christian life when the Holy Spirit, which the Holy Spirit is said to be the guarantee of back in the verses earlier, in verse 13 and 14, but we have this incredible inheritance which God's Spirit brings about in our life. And then lastly, the, the power that's available to us. He describes His incomparably great power for us who believe. And this seems to be the focus of Paul's prayer because uh, not only does Paul go on to explain what this power is like in the verses right after, but he brings up the issue of power over and over in the book of Ephesians. And you know, I, I think as we think about this prayer to understand the power for us, I think about my own struggle to believe the magnitude of the power that we have available to us. I think it's really difficult to believe. You know, if you were to ask me, is God powerful? The answer would be easily yes. If you were to ask me, uh, is God powerfully at work in people? Easy. The answer is yes. If you were to ask me, is God's power at work in me? All of a sudden, it opens up a whole struggle. Because I start to, to wrestle with, well, am I, how is God going to use me? And, and how is God going to take my life with everything I've done in my life? And how is he going to be at work in me? And it's suddenly really difficult for me to wrap my mind around. I mean, who am I? for God to use? Who am I for God's power to be at work in? I'm unworthy and inadequate and unwanted and weak and average and mediocre and less than and ill-equipped. I could think of all sorts of adjectives and on any given day I might feel that any of those adjectives describe who I am. You know, Moses was slow of speech and tongue. That was his excuse for why God was not going to use him. Gideon was said to be the least of his clan. That's what Gideon thought about himself. Jeremiah was young. Timothy was timid. So what? God was with them. So what about who they were? It's, the point is about who God is and that God is with them and his power is at work in you. And that's what we have to grasp and understand. You know, Paul goes on to describe that the power in us is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when God raised Christ from the dead and exalted him and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. In other words, Jesus is supreme over everything and the church is in a privileged position because Jesus is Lord. You know, you know there's a New Year's Day. This is a long time ago, probably when I was really young, uh, but I've only read about it, but on New Year's Day, in the Tournament of Roses parade, there was a beautiful float that suddenly sputtered out and quit. And it was out of gas. That was the reason why this float uh, died out. And the whole parade was held up until somebody could get a can of gas for this float. And the amusing thing was, was that the float represented the Standard Oil Company. 
And with its vast oil resources, its truck was out of gas. And often Christians, because we neglect the maintenance on our spiritual lives, they have this incomparably great power, but they don't live like it. And we need to pray to grasp this power that we have available to us. My inner dialogue can so quickly devolve into a defeated attitude. But when I start to pray and think about what we read here, my thought patterns change. I I suddenly have greater spiritual morale. And so we need to pray that we can know this power that we have available to us. How is the focus of your personal prayer life different or similar to what we read about here in Ephesians? How might you need the lights turned on in your heart and mind? How would that change your whole spiritual morale, your righteousness, your relationships, your impact? Let's pray as the Apostle Paul prayed, that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, and that he would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we would know him better and know the benefits of the gospel. Amen? Amen.